The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Crypto Untethered, Unlimited Holidays at Goldman Sachs. Welcome back to The Views Room. I'm your host, Amy Donlan, a columnist of Breaking Views, coming to you from London. The cryptocurrency market has taken a battering over the past two weeks. So-called stable coins like TerraUSD and Tether, whose value is linked to the US dollar, were at the center of this market rout. There's a bigger problem with these wobbles. These coins play a crucial role in the market and are used as collateral for crypto derivatives. But there doesn't seem to be an easy fix for these issues. If companies begin backing their stable coins with, say, bank deposits, they'll become less profitable and less attractive compared to up-and-coming stablecoin providers that are offering much better returns. With such instability, further collapses seem likely. Meanwhile, Goldman Sachs is offering senior staff unlimited holidays. The Wall Street giant revealed this plan in an internal memo which was seen by Breaking Views. The plan would see all staff take a minimum of 15 days annual leave each year, and the senior staff, like managing directors and partners, could take unlimited leave. The plan could also help rehabilitate Goldman's reputation after its junior staff complained of inhumane working conditions. But far from encouraging bankers to take their foot off the pedal, boss David Solomon may be banking on his highly competitive staff taking fewer holidays for fear of judgment from peers. First up, I chat to Liam Proud in London about the crypto day of reckoning. Next, I speak to John Foley in New York about Goldman Sachs' plan to offer unlimited holiday to staff and why it may not be as generous as it seems. Crypto has had a very rough two weeks. Here to talk to you about it is Liam Proud in London. Liam, I'm going to start this discussion just very honestly and candidly saying that this is an education for me in terms of crypto. And I read your piece. It was fascinating. Obviously, an awful lot going on about this. Regulators are looking at this space. So start off, I'm going to set some ground rules for you, Liam. There's no jargon allowed. <laughs> everything <laughs> I'll do I my best. is padded with jargon, not your piece at all. But uh, yeah, so tell us what's what's going on. There is a specific type of, of token that is backed by, you know, dollars and other kind of financial assets, and they've been going through a bit of a torrid time. Yeah, so and, and also just I, I don't want to claim that I'm a crypto um, diehard expert by by any means, but I've had a look at it and done my best to understand it. What's going on? So there's a lot of things going on in crypto at the moment, but um, the big sort of overarching theme is that like a lot of other kind of risk assets, you know, equities, high yield bonds, they've they've had a really difficult time in the past two weeks and they've sold off quite heavily. You might expect as much, you know, as I said, sort of You've seen the stock market go down, sort of risky growth tech stocks have gone down a lot as well. But there's been something quite particular happening in crypto, which is potentially kind of systemically important for the the crypto sector. So there's this class of crypto assets called stable coins, and they really, you know, they do what they say on the tin or they're supposed to. They're digital assets held on a blockchain which is a kind of just a a ledger, I guess, that's spread over a lot of different computers. And these digital assets held on a blockchain, they're not like the other assets, blockchain assets like Bitcoin and Ether. They don't kind of go up and down in value a huge amount. They're supposed to be steady. They're supposed to be stable. Hence the name stablecoin. And they are 
They're incredibly important within the crypto ecosystem for several reasons. First of all, a, a lot of trades are actually denominated in Tether. Um, its currency is USDT, which is one of the um, well, the biggest stable coin. So often you'd be trading a kind of currency pair, um, you know, Bitcoin denominated in Tether. Um, okay. So that's pretty, you know, if, if, if the stable coin is going around in value, it becomes hard to price trades. But they're also yeah. just the kind of, sorry, go ahead. Is it like the dollar? Is the, are these? Is that how we should kind of think about them? There is basically kind of, you know, the dollar doesn't fluctuate that much. It's sort of the stable currency. I think that's a reason. It, yeah, I mean, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things going on with that analogy, but I think that's probably one way to understand it, that you have this this ecosystem of, of, of crypto, which is very volatile and assets tend to move around extremely quickly. And stable coins are, are supposed to be a kind of fixed point of reference that don't move around so much. Um, so, yeah, and to, to extend your, your point, I guess, you know, if a stable coin collapsed, it would be, you know, maybe not quite as chaotic as, as as a collapse in the dollar for world trade but it you get the point like how would you buy and sell oil which is denominated in dollars um if the dollar was moving around all over the place that would make it really difficult so that's for the same reason it's really important that stable coins are in fact stable um they're also people people sort of keep their idle cash balances in stable coins as well you don't want to be kind of going in and out of the crypto crypto universe all the time um, with your dollars. So you'll tend to sort of like just leave cash in between trades in the form of stable coins. And also people borrow and lend in stable coins and stable coins are often used as collateral for um, for borrowing and lending. So that's why they're important. So there were two companies. Tell us about these companies that basically have sort of, you know, one of them sort of collapsed over the past week. So what what has happened to them and why why is it so significant? So there are two as you say, two stable coins, which had very different cases, but but there's a running theme. So I'll start with Terra, um, which had a currency called Terra USD um, or UST, as people used to call it. I'll try not to use the um, acronyms anymore. Um, bad, so bad words. Exactly. So so Terra was a is a is a very young stable coin. It's sort of surged in popularity over the past year and it completely collapsed basically um you know these things are supposed to be pegged to the dollar they're supposed to be worth a dollar or thereabouts at all times um not only did it lose its peg it it basically doesn't function anymore it's not it's it's, it's not really a thing um for a while you couldn't it you know it wasn't being traded on exchanges or anything it's and even the underlying blockchain was halted for a bit as well so why did that happen there's a lot of reasons, um, but it basically stems from the design of that stable coin, which again takes us to another layer of kind of complexity here. Um, w without going down a rabbit hole, it it had a very complex design relative to other stable coins, where there was a there was a parallel crypto asset which would fluctuate in value, and Terra was effectively pegged to the dollar through that parallel asset. Um, and so it wasn't as clean as it seemed. It wasn't. I mean, there was a kind of conceptual elegance to it, which I think people in crypto kind of appreciated because you didn't need to rely on the outside, you know, the sort of like real hard currency universe. You didn't need to rely on banks and, you know, governments and sort of what they call fiat money. It was all, you know, pegged within the crypto world. But there was just this huge design flaw where basically the way that you would restore the peg if Terra was trading below a dollar was um, 
through these trading incentives, you would end up creating more of the parallel sister currency, which was called Luna. And I mean, you you can look at the um, numbers um, if you Google it, but essentially that led to what looks like basically hyperinflation for Luna. Suddenly there were, you know, billions, if not trillions of coins created, um, which made the value go down. Um, people are calling it a death spiral, which if you look at the screens is is probably apt. And when Luna lost its value, the whole thing basically collapsed. It just, it, you couldn't possibly maintain the peg anymore. So this is obviously, I mean, people lost money in this. I mean, I, I even I have an uncle who has invested in Bitcoin. I'm sure there's lots of kind of everyday savers. So this, I'm sure, is kind of gathering the attention of regulators. What are what's what are the regulators thinking about this whole situation and 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 how they might kind of make it safer or I guess maybe stop these companies from I guess marketing themselves as a sort of safe haven in a way. Sure. So so to get onto the regulatory bit, um, we should probably talk about the other stablecoin, which which didn't collapse at all, nothing like it. Um, and this one's called Tether, and it works in a completely different way to Terra. Um, it's unfortunate that, you know, if you sort of glance at them on the page, Terra and Tether look like similar words, but um, they, they, they're they quite different, but they're very different. Tether didn't collapse. Tether, Tether is absolutely massive. Um, you know, before all the problems, it, it had a kind of $80 billion worth of, of tokens in circulation. It's by far and away the biggest and most systemically important stablecoin. And in the wake of the problems with Terra, the other one which collapsed, Tether very briefly lost its peg on exchanges. It its mechanism is is much more similar to kind of I guess like a money market fund or sort of conventional things that you'd see in um, mainstream finance, where the way it has a peg is you give Tether a dollar in order to create um, the digital token, which is called USDT, and that dollar is held in sort of you know real kind of uh, fiat currency assets. And if you ask for that dollar back, they will sell those assets and give you the dollar, which is exactly what they've been doing. Um, for over a six day period, I think there were 7 billion of redemptions and, and, and they met them with ease. So why do regulators care? Given what I said about the importance of stable coins in the ecosystem, you can probably guess that if something like Tether were to collapse, it would be pandemonium for, for the sector really it's hard to see how markets would function properly um, if tether went to zero so wh why would why would regulators think that there's a chance of tether going to zero well it's not that anyone thinks that that is you know immediately possible or likely but there are some kind of flaws with the design of tether you know nothing like terra's flaws but um essentially what what tether does is it takes your real world dollars turns them into digital tokens which are their you know liabilities for tether if you if you come back and ask to swap it they they have to you know or they they, they pledge to give you a, a real dollar back but it invests your dollars and it invests them in a bunch of different assets there are a bunch of treasury bonds in there you know pretty safe or very safe there's some cash in a bank account not very much there's a lot of commercial paper which is a slightly slightly riskier security depending on what type of commercial paper it is. Um, and then there's some some other, you know, relatively risky stuff like some loans um, they've made from the reserve. There's also some corporate bonds and some digital tokens. So you can imagine a scenario where for some reason, you know, maybe there's some kind of market panic, people come to Tether and say, 
hey, we need to redeem, we need real world dollars back. But actually, Tether's got a big chunk of the money tied up in, you know, corporate bonds or or whatever, and it can't sell them without making a loss. And in that scenario, it would potentially lose its peg and all of the, you know, a lot of the bad consequences that we talked about before could start happening. And that that is what regulators are worried about. I think it's something kind of, you know, basically a money collapse, like the, the crypto money not functioning anymore and that all of that associated wealth kind of, um, you know, having having some quite severe issues. And you, your piece, I thought it was interesting, Liam, where you talk about there are there is like a safer option for them, which is for them to use obviously safer assets, which you know you know bank deposits and I guess more treasuries. But then you also were saying I think that this is the problem with this is, is this they become less profitable then as a result. Talk me through that. Yeah. So so the question you know that I think a lot of people, including regulators, have now is. Right, Terra collapsed, so that type of design, you know, people shouldn't trust that. Tether, you know, hasn't at all collapsed, but, you know, it did wobble a little bit, and there have been quite a lot of redemptions now. And as we described, you can imagine the scenario where it came under quite a lot of pressure. Just incidentally, his- historically, it's had a lot of um, accusations of kind of untoward practices. So it was fined by various US regulators for for lying effectively and it, and, it, and it paid to settle those out of court. So that's just another reason to be to be wary here. But essentially the question is well what would a, a truly stable stable coin actually look like um, if you didn't want it to have any of these potential weaknesses. The the obvious place to go is just to say okay you give us a dollar we'll give you a digital token and we will keep your dollar in a bank account and if you ask for that dollar back we will give you that dollar bank because it was just sitting in a bank account. You know, there shouldn't be any of the sort of issues with having to sell off corporate bond portfolios or, you know, commercial paper holdings or anything like that. Um, that, you know, to put it in banker sort of balance sheet terms, you know, the assets and the liabilities would be matched in terms of their liquidity roughly. There are a few issues with that, though. I mean, that 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 is a kind of model. You know, there's, there's a company called Circle, which... Um, runs a big stable coin called USDC, which is kind of moving in this direction. It's not all cash in a bank account, but they're sort of they're sort of closer than Tether. So why why doesn't everyone do that? And why don't regulators, you know, wholeheartedly think that that's exactly where it should go? Well, you know, maybe some regulators do think that's where it should go, but I think there are some issues with that. First of all, call up Tether and try and make them do this. I'm sure that I'm sure there's no reason for them to do this unless they're forced to, because basically they're making a lot of money off the assets at the moment. And if they stuck them all in a bank account or, you know, were somehow able to put them on demand at the Federal Reserve, they wouldn't make a lot of money. They wouldn't make as much money as they do from investing a bunch of the reserves. So that's one reason why it might not happen um, unless they're somehow somehow forced to. But I'm not even sure how that would work. The second reason to maybe be a bit wary of that solution is, well, if there's no yield being made off the assets, if they're just sitting in a bank account earning practically zero, then there's no real business model for running a stable coin unless you're going to start charging transaction fees. Um, So to cover your costs of basically being a big digital bank, you'd have to probably charge some fees to the people using the stable coin. So what will that do? I mean, I think you're probably going to see people maybe you know, use that stable coin less. I mean, one of the big attractions of Tether is that it's effectively free to use. You don't, you know, there are some fees if you pull your money out or there are some fees for putting it in as well, but it's, you don't incur a fee from moving Tether around the crypto ecosystem. So if you started seeing a scenario where where a real, truly stable stable coin had to cover its costs by charging fees, 
what would people do? I think a lot of crypto traders would just go and find another stable coin, which isn't truly backed by dollars, but which is free to use. And really, there's just as many as them if, if, as you want to find. I mean, there's always a, a new kind of crypto asset promising high yields and stability that's just around the corner. And frankly, they're completely out of reach to regulators. You know, this is just open source code sitting, you know, maybe not even developed in the United States. So how would the Fed even go for that um, person? It's kind of hard to see. So there's this slightly unfortunate dynamic, I think, where, um, you know, just to take an example, Terra, the one that completely collapsed, that grew in popularity because one of its associated products was offering a 20% yield. A lot of people flocked to it. So if you forced everyone to have fully dollar-backed stable coins, um, there's always going to be an angle for slightly ropier stable coins to come along and undercut um, the fees, I think. So Wow. So you have a, an unregulated market that has some sort of shaky structures, which I guess lead to instability and I suppose further collapses in the future. So I would imagine they will be will be watching the space very closely again and talking to you, talking to you more about it. Thanks very much, Liam. Thanks, Amy. Cheers. Goldman Sachs and unlimited holidays don't seem to be obvious bedfellows, but still that's what the Wall Street giant has decided it's going to offer senior staff like managing directors and partners. I'm here with John Foley, who's in New York. Hello, John. Hi, Amy. How are you? Good, good. Uh, so, yes, tell us about this, this generosity of spirit from Goldman Sachs, um, unlimited holidays. So the, uh, how I would read that is you can take as much holiday as you want. If you want to go to the Caribbean for three months, off you go. So the first thing about unlimited holiday is that companies that offer it hate it when you call it unlimited holiday, because obviously it isn't really unlimited. If you took 360 days off to go on a year round yoga retreat, then then the company would, you know, would not thank you. So I, I probably should start by saying it's not really unlimited. But what Goldman Sachs has done, according to a memo, um, which uh, various people out there, including us, have seen, is offer flexible flexible slash open slash use your own judgment hot vacation time for its most senior employees which means you know you have to negotiate obviously with your peers and your seniors but basically there's no cap on how many days you can take more junior people don't get this but what they do get is a two-day extension to their own fixed allowance and, and everyone at goldman is going to be strongly encouraged to take a minimum of 15 days of, of vacation. So so this is a, a change and it's not that common. I, I haven't come across other big Wall Street firms that are doing this or even that are talking about it actively. So Goldman is in a sense out there. The question is, of course, whether the employees or the company do better from this new arrangement. So, John, why 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 do you think they're doing this? I mean, the way we always look at Goldman Sachs when we're writing about them at Breaking Views is, they tend to be on the right side of trades. They look at things in a very kind of numeric profit and loss kind of way. What do you think is the benefit to Goldman with this policy? Well, I think Goldman, like the whole of Wall Street, has seen uh, its own version of a story that actually has been playing out across the whole economy, not just in the US, but pretty much globally during COVID, which is so, some people call it the great resignation, which is this idea that employees are realizing that life is too short to sleep under your desk and be worked into an early grave so they they quit or they go somewhere where they feel they can get more excitement and maybe a better work-life balance so that's definitely happening 
in the US economy. And we see that through data that the Bureau of Labor Services collects called the, it's called the quits rate. It's the percentage of people in any industry who quit every month. But when you look at finance, the quits rate is rate is higher than it used to be, but it's still pretty low. So we're only talking like one one and a half ish percent of financial people quit every month, which is compared with about six point something percent in the kind of hotel and leisure trade. So so finance is still not it's not seeing quite a, a brain drain like other industries, but people are disgruntled and they want better working conditions and they want to work from home. And some Wall Street firms don't want to let them work from home, including Goldman Sachs, whose CEO David Solomon once said that working from home was an aberration. So they're trying to find other ways to keep people happy. And one of those is to say, listen, we know that you work really hard, so we're going to let you, in theory, take more days off. The idea being that this will stop people from going and working for you know, a crypto firm or a multi-strategy hedge fund or someone who's offering a better work-life balance. So I guess the question, I mean, in your piece, you had this very kind of nice um, idea of an experiment where chocolates were offered um, and basically they were limited and unlimited. And tell us about that, John, because I, I guess the question that I'm kind of alluding to here is, does this end up encouraging people to take more holidays when you have sort of unlimited and to use their their banned word but if you have a more generous approach to the way that people can take leave does it actually lead to that well intuitively when you think about it if your company gives you a fixed allocation of vacation the amount of holiday you can take is governed by that rule it's a transparent clear rule and if you take 20 days off and your allowance is 20 days you can at least say i only took what was allocated to me if there is no fixed allocation then one of the kind of binding constraints on how much you take is peer pressure. It's, it's what you think your colleagues will think of you and what you think your superiors will think of you. And if you're on a team where your day off means other people have to catch up on the work or your day off means that the whole team makes less money and then you all get paid less, then there's going to be a really strong incentive on you to work harder than you need to. Now, already at Wall Street, there is an, and in the US more, more broadly, there is an issue with people not taking vacation to their maximum allowance. So already people don't take as many days as they get. Um, but when you remove that allowance, intuitively you end up with people working less. Now Goldman has put in a floor, there's 15 days, you must take a minimum of 15 days. That's that's good, that is a good sign because it means that people don't end up taking no days because they feel so guilty. But that, the chocolate experiment was a, a, just a kind of an amusing example of this. It was an economic paper written by a guy who's now, of course, Shlomi Boshi, who's now a, an executive at Stripe. And what he and his peers did was they basically took a bowl of chocolates and put up a stand around the university campus saying, fill in this questionnaire. And if you do so, you can take some chocolates. And they varied the number of chocolates that people were told they were allowed to take. And what they found is that if you told people that they could take no more than three chocolates, they roughly on average took about two. Mm. Whereas if you said, fill your boots, take as many chocolates as you like for filling in this questionnaire, they, they basically only took one. So if you and and it's to do with what they call quasi free goods that people value things that seem to be free differently from things that have a stated value that's told to you by someone else. And actually, you, you might tend to under consume those quasi free goods. And in this case, the quasi free good is a day off. And also just to add, I mean, it is quasi free for the company, because if they give you a day off, it's, that's for them much better than giving you the equivalent cash in a pay rise. Because the day off doesn't impact their cash flows at all. And you're probably going to do the same amount of work over the course of the year as you would have done anyway. So we'll just have to see how this pans out. I guess they're not going to say that, you know, they've got amazing results because people were taking lots of annual leave. But maybe they might actually reveal some of the data 
in a few years time, I think it'd be really interesting to see whether people were more likely to take more or less leave now that this policy is about. I mean, I wouldn't hold my breath for them to disclose anything because you would imagine if that com- if companies find that people take less vacation, they're not going to say so. Certainly, there are a lot of other companies that already have these kind of policies. Netflix is one. General Electric, even, which is kind of surprising because it's you know an industrial company rather than a kind of fancy new tech firm, they have a similar permissive time off policy. But you know these companies don't really report data on on the impact. And I think the answer might be because it's in many cases better for the company than it is for the worker. Yeah, interesting. Very interesting. Well, John, thank you very much for that. Interesting as always. And uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks, Amy. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Sharon Lamb in Toronto and Oliver Taslek in London. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on a cast, megaphone or wherever you like to listen. Check out our latest views and these stories and many others on BreakingViews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at BreakingViews.